Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, December the 14th, and we are celebrating National Plutonium Isolation Day. And if you don't have any for yourself, uh, be sure to check out National Free Shipping Day. Uh, my name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I'm a lumberjack, and I'm okay. And joining me is uh, my favorite co-host in the entire whole world, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, I guess. Um, it's also, I will point out, National Monkey Day. And having National Monkey Day and National Plutonium Day, or honestly, National Monkey Day and National Free Shipping Day on the same day is um, interesting. You know, if I can get myself a, a radioactive monkey shipped here for free, I'm going to totally going to take advantage of that. Because I am there. Whatever. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and jump into some of the news stories we've got. We know it's December and, and the news is uh, people are starting to wind down, but we did have a couple of stories that uh, we thought might be very interesting to you. And the first one actually involves an acquisition because Microsoft has reportedly purchased Fungible. The DPU startup was picked up for about $190 million, which is down from the $300 million that they've taken in in funding since they were founded back in 2015. Microsoft had been in talks to launch a custom chip deal with the company, uh, but I guess they just decided to buy the whole thing outright at a little bit of a discount. Now, when you look at what Fungible was producing with their DPUs and how they interface with a lot of different systems, uh, this would be a huge pickup for Microsoft Azure uh, and position them as being competitive against AWS with their Nitro DPUs. Um, Microsoft, of course, does not comment on rumors and still hasn't confirmed the purchase yet, but almost everybody else is saying that this is a done deal. Stephen, did Microsoft pick up a great technology here for a song? Yes. Moving on to the next, no, I'm kidding. Yes, they actually did. Uh, Fungible had great technology. Uh, we heard from them at uh, Field Day back in March, and um, it was really, uh, really good stuff. It's a great team. Um, but the problem is that it's, you know, one of these games of musical chairs that happens in the industry where companies will come out with a new product uh, category, and then a bunch of other companies will all come in. And, and a lot of the time, those other companies are really solid, too. Uh, but then, you know, you get some consolidation. And so we saw, you know, NVIDIA with Mellanox, uh, Intel with Barefoot and their own homegrown stuff. Now AMD has purchased Pensando. Um, we've also got companies like Liquid and Lightbits that remain independent but are doing really, really well in this uh, same sort of space. And uh, so Fungible sort of had to find where it fit. And um, as, as you mentioned, everybody wants to be able to compete with uh, Amazon Web Services and their, and their uh, Nitro cards, which sort of kicked off the whole product category. So it makes sense. I was going to say that it was either going to be um, maybe Google, maybe uh, Meta, uh, or you know maybe Microsoft. Looks like Microsoft got them. Um, and frankly, it looks like Microsoft kind of got them for a song, uh, which is pretty, you know, pretty sad because, frankly, like I said, it was good technology, a good company. But um, you know, hopefully, this is a, a new, a new uh, run for them. Uh, looks like they're keeping a lot of the same folks on, uh, a lot of the same staff. They're going to be continuing to develop, and uh, this will be a pretty good home for a lot of those uh, developers. So you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a good move for the for the company as well. Just not so much for the investors. Tom, uh, looks like three of VMware's senior executives have decided to take an extended holiday vacation. Uh, Tom Gillis, Mark Lohmeyer, and Ajay Patel are departing for new ventures. Uh, Gillis was the general manager of networking and security. Lohmeyer oversaw a cloud infrastructure business unit. And Patel was the head of the applications and management unit. The roles will be filled by other VMware folks, of which they have 
plots. Uh, but the question remains about whether or not the departures are related to the pending uh, acquisition of VMware by Broadcom and the rumored headwinds that it may face uh, from regulators. What do you think, Tom? Well, here's the interesting part about this. Normally, you would expect to see some of these uh, senior level executives departing after an acquisition. That that's you know, we saw that um, well specifically at Cisco when uh, Chuck Robbins took over the reins we had a lot of people who just kind of disappeared um, mostly that's the uh, the when the uh, senior VPs aren't going to get the job uh, when they see that they're not going to get the job they they decide to leave normally you don't see this right before an acquisition in fact um, obviously they're in a quiet period so they can't, really can't say anything you would expect the senior leadership to stick around even through the first couple of months of the acquisition to kind of provide continuity until the company that is doing the acquisition can kind of put their people in place. So what happened? Well, if it had been one person, I probably wouldn't have shrugged my shoulders about this. If it was three people who lead the three biggest business units inside of VMware, now my eyebrows are raised. You lost networking and security, cloud and applications and management. Uh, that if for you World War II veterans out there, that would be like if all of a sudden you lost Patton, Halsey and LeMay all at once because they all decided to leave. Like that's the three biggest parts of your business. What do they know that we don't? And if you look at the fact that the FTC slammed the door on Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard this last week, which is the largest tech acquisition in history at just shy of $70 billion dollars the second biggest tech acquisition of all time is Broadcom's acquisition of VMware at a little over $60 billion. So I'm beginning to wonder exactly how rough this is going to get. I honestly don't know that this is going to happen now, which puts everybody in a really weird spot, which might explain why three senior VPs decided that now is the time to go ahead and move on out and go found a new venture somewhere else in Silicon Valley. I'm not saying that that's what's happened but I'm not necessarily saying that's what the tea leaves are telling me. All right, Stephen, uh, we also have a new product announcement that's kind of interesting. Uh, Ventana Microsystems announced that the release of their newest high-performance RISC-V chip this week. The Veyron V1 is positioned to be an offering for both end users, as well as a form of intellectual property that can be the basis for designing your own custom solution. Veyron utilizes chiplet technology to reduce time to market while also providing reliable components from proven suppliers. And those chiplets allow them to leverage uh, some parallel die-to-die -die connectivity to facilitate communications between them as opposed to using a PCIe bus. That means faster speeds. That's why they named it after a big, fast uh, Bugatti car. Um, Stephen, we've talked about risk in the data center quite a few times this year. What does Veyron offer to those that are looking to make the switch to something non-X86? Yeah, this is a pretty exciting story. Um, Ventana, uh, we, well, we, we've been kind of watching them here at Gestalt IT for a while. Uh, they actually briefed Tom on this announcement. Um, and frankly, it's, it's pretty exciting. So just to be clear, um, these are not uh, the little RISC-V chips that you find in, um, well, everything now that you just don't even know that they're there because they're really uh, offsetting the ARM uh, winds in all sorts of embedded locations. These are so-called brawny cores. These are, these are big bears that can do real work and compete with the best of x86 and ARM. Uh, so we're talking about a 16-core chiplet with um, PCI Express 5, with DDR5 memory. Uh, this thing's got CXL 2.0. Um, this is a real deal uh, CPU. 
And Ventana is offering it basically to anybody who wants to use it uh, for you know cloud computing, for integrated um, applications. They'll they'll even sell it as a chiplet so that um, vendors can build their own processor around the Ventana Veyron core. Um, I am very impressed by what they've been able to do here in their in their first round. Now, obviously. There is an asterisk because we have to wait and see how it really performs in the real world and how compatibility is and things like that. But uh, this really bodes well for RISC-V. The fact that this new processor architecture can basically be right there at the table with x86 and chips like you know the Ampere ARM chip and so on is, is really uh, exciting because frankly, competition is good for the industry. It's good for all of us. And it shows that there's some really exciting competition happening here. I will be definitely keeping an eye on the Ventana um, chips. I will be looking to see uh, customer wins. I'll be looking to see especially if they get wins with hardware makers. And of course, as the host of utilizing CXL, I will be very, very interested to see how their CXL 2.0 uh, support is. Because um, if you don't know about CXL, uh, AMD just announced the first uh, platform, commercial platform that supports CXL with their next generation Epics. Um, it is widely expected that Intel will announce CXL with a product called Sapphire Rapids internally um, early next year. And uh, those both are rumored to support, to be limited to the 1.1 CXL level. Um, to have a 2.0 CXL product is really exciting. Uh, I should also mention that at the uh, CXL forum, uh, we heard that uh, ARM is going to be uh, also supporting this in their next generation course. So this thing is going to be everywhere, and it's going to be interesting to see really what that means for the market going forward. But, um, you know, stay tuned. Tom, it's not a good day when your secure signing keys are out in the wild. It's worse yet if they were the signing keys for an entire mobile operating platform. Google isn't having a very good day for sure because the signing keys from Samsung, LG, and MediaTek have somehow been leaked out into the wild and are being actively used to sign malware. Samsung released a statement saying that they were aware of the leaked key and have been issuing patches to prevent exposure. Uh, Google is recommending the near future to only install apps from the Google Play Store and to avoid sideloading apps that haven't been verified by Google's processes. Tom, this sounds like a big deal. You're not kidding. Here's the problem. Anytime, remember how we've been um, advising our loved ones to not just click OK, OK, OK when things pop up, especially if they say things like this, the security certificate here cannot be confirmed. Like we've literally spent the last, I don't know what, 10 years reminding people to look for the little padlock to make sure that your secure connection is actually secure. And then all the signing keys leak. And, and here's the deal. It's not one company. If you look in the news story that we linked, Samsung's signing key has actually been out in the wild for like five years now. At least one of them has. This is three of the biggest developers for Android. Their signing keys are, are, are out there. Like that's like basically posting your password on a post-it note and then putting a webcam on it for everybody to see. Like it's a huge, huge problem. So what are they going to do? Well, they have to revoke those keys, right? Like that's literally the reason why we have things like certificate revocation lists. <laughs> oh, wait, those don't work either because we basically disabled them everywhere because they take too long. So what's, what Google now has a problem with is that if you, and let's be fair, this only affects things that are not inside the Google Play Store. Because while I know that there are reports that the Google Play Store is infested with malware, and it kind of is, um, at least those things have been vetted. 
you have seen processes that have gone through and be like, guys, this looks really, really shady. So you know, they're doing a good job of filtering a lot of that out. This concerns sideloading things. <clears throat> because if I can inject malware directly into a sideloaded APK, and I can actually cause it to not trigger an alert whenever you're trying to install something on the system, that's going to be a big problem because now all of those users that would maybe normally look at this and go, something doesn't look right, is they're not going to get that warning that would basically protect them. Now, I will say, uh, Patrick Gray over at Risky Business uh, mentioned this. And one thing he did say is, thank God right now, all they're doing is the quick cash grabs, you know, the, the adware, the, the, the usual like uh, picking the dollars up off the floor kind of stuff. Where it becomes a problem is, is that when someone who's a little bit more advanced, like, you know, our friends over at Our Evil or any of the other groups, uh, figure out how to do some really crafty and creative stuff to inject payloads down in there. Because this security signing certificate, it doesn't allow you to have root access on an Android device right now, but it lets you get into the same ring as the root process, which is essentially the same thing. And that's bad overall because, well, once you have root access or near it, you can inject all kinds of random stuff into the kernel and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So let's hope that we get that mess cleaned up pretty soon. All right, Steven, I don't know if you've taken a look at the stock market recently, but uh, I know one company that has, Microsoft, because they announced a deal with the London Stock Exchange for a 10-year partnership, including an investment in the exchange itself and a commitment to migrate everything to Azure. Microsoft is taking a 4% stake in the exchange, but it says that it will net over $5 billion in revenue over the next decade. Well, that seems like an awfully expensive way uh, to win cloud business for people not named Larry Ellison. Um, maybe it makes sense to do this with a stock exchange because we know that while stocks may go up and down, the exchange kind of is there no matter what. But Stephen, I guess the biggest question is, is this a good move for Microsoft? Yeah, it really is on the face of it. I mean, they're going to be making a lot more money than they're going to be investing in the stock exchange. And frankly, uh, they're, it's not like they're buying a whole stock exchange or something. They're basically making an investment in a customer, which, you know, isn't unheard of. Um, it's just a little strange to think about a company that is trying to win business uh, going out there and investing in the, in the very business that they're trying to win business from. But that's not to say that it's um, unprecedented. In fact, um, a year ago, Google said that it was going to invest a billion dollars in the CME Group, uh, which is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, I believe. Um, and basically, then they moved into Google Cloud. Um, uh, NASDAQ and Amazon have a similar partnership. And um, I am not aware of the exact specifications there from the investment in NASDAQ. But um, I think that this is a thing that kind of happens. And as you said, a lot of these cloud companies are also big financial companies and have big financial interests and make a lot of investments overall. I think the only story here is that it's just so tightly coupled that uh, the, the London Stock Exchange is going to go to Azure just as Microsoft is buying a $2 billion stake in the London Stock Exchange. Um, you know, I think that that's really kind of where the, the questions come. Um, I think overall, though, the, the impact of this story is to consider the fact that stock exchanges are modernizing, they're refactoring applications, they're entering the cloud space, and the way that they're doing it is in partnership with these major uh, public cloud providers. And, you know, if you had to pick one, um, Azure's not a bad one to pick, uh, especially since, according to what I'm reading, um, all, the London Stock Exchange was already heavily invested in Microsoft products. So, okay. Um, I, all I'm saying is basically it sounds weird, but maybe it's not so weird as it sounds to those of us who aren't in the financial industry. Yeah. 
Um, so Stephen, we had a story that we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look here kind of toward the end of 2022, because it could end up being something bigger as we get into 2023, uh, because tech production in China is becoming more and more concerning by the day. Uh, between the pandemic and the international te technology transfer restrictions, uh, this could become one of the biggest stories, honestly, of all time. China had tried to keep the COVID genie in the bottle ever since the beginning of the pandemic, but now they're being forced to shift gears by relaxing testing and quarantine policies and really hoping for the best. And this follows repeated interruptions to life and to business in China, including some of the biggest technology manufacturing centers in the world over the course of the last two years. The country is also starting to see tightening restrictions on a lot of other economic things, such as export controls on advanced semiconductor manufacturing and equipment. Now, Stephen, we talk a lot about how integrated countries like China are with all of the things that we manufacture and utilize in our daily lives. How is China going to be able to weather both of these crises, both a um, you know medical-related thing, but also an economic challenge? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I brought this story to the to the attention here uh, this week because, uh, frankly, it, it was two things that hit my inbox at the same time, and it really follows on a lot of the things we've been talking about here on the rundown uh, all year round and even before that as well. Um, so as you mentioned, China has had what they called their zero COVID policy, which was basically the most extreme um, attempt to control the spread of COVID in the world. Uh, they would uh, had mandatory testing, mandatory isolation, mandatory closures of everything from um, apartments to factories to whole cities. And it has, well, if you believe the statistics from China, moderately worked. But the uh, people of China were not all that happy to have all these restrictions still in place for this long and uh, were protesting, literally protesting in the streets. It now sounds like China is completely doing a 180 on this and saying, you know what, COVID's not so bad, we're gonna let things relax, we're not gonna have mandatory testing or mandatory reporting, and oh, by the way, you know, there's not much COVID anyway, and you can survive it. And, you know, I mean, basically just sort of just backing off entirely, which is probably good uh, for the Chinese people who've been really struggling with these restrictions for a long time, but maybe not so good for their health in the long term, because I imagine uh, with their vaccine rate being fairly low that there's gonna be quite a lot of COVID going through China in the next a uh, year or so as it so as they sort of catch up with the rest of the world's infections. Um, meanwhile, at the same time, like we, we've been talking about, the U.S. has been really ratcheting up restrictions on advanced technology in China. Uh, we have reported previously here on the rundown that the U.S. has restricted access to technology from certain um, companies uh, by adding them to a control list. Uh, they then uh, ramped up access, uh, controlling access to advanced uh, processors and GPUs, uh, including the latest uh, GPUs from NVIDIA, for example. Uh, and, and it looks like, uh, according to this news story, um, they have finally gotten agreement from um, the Netherlands and Japan to restrict access to China from the most advanced semiconductor manufacturing technology from companies like Tokyo Electron and ASML. And even though you might not know of ASML, they're the company that makes the um, advanced semiconductor uh, lithography equipment that makes all of these advanced process nodes possible. Without access to these things, as well as software from companies like LAM Research, um, people in China are not going to be able to advance, you know, manufacture advanced semiconductors. At the same time, China is responding by setting up an uh, incentive fund to try to incentivize homegrown production of semiconductors. 
When we talked about this before, I pointed out that the, the risk here is that China may prove more resilient and more adaptable and more creative than others, uh, you know, people around the world expect. And they may end up, uh, this restriction may end up spurring a homegrown industry in advanced uh, semiconductor uh, design, production, lithography machine production, and it really could disrupt the, uh, the global economy in that direction as well. But short term, looking at 2023, I really feel like uh, the fact that it's not just the US, that it's Europe and Japan, and presumably uh, Korea might be next to do something here. Um, this really could disrupt China's access to advanced technology at the same time that COVID is gonna be sweeping the country. I think that uh, this does not bode well for even companies that aren't directly doing business with China because, you know, remember the, the, the chip uh, crisis, uh, you know, where companies didn't have access to, to, to components. I think that's coming. Uh, again, and I think it's going to be worse. I think it's going to be uh, a much bigger crisis in 2023. And that's going to cause problems for all of the companies that we report on here at the rundown. And it's interesting that we look at the fact that China is is basically facing down these economic restrictions when they have become so integrated into the global supply chain, but companies aren't really taking any more chances. I mean, if, you, if you're following the consumer tech industry, you probably noticed that there are basically no iPhone Pros to be found anywhere in the world right now because they're all sold out. And with all of the restrictions for COVID that have been going on in the Foxconn plant in Shenzhen, they couldn't get in to manufacture them. Okay, no big deal. So what's, it, what's Apple gonna do? Well, they've already started to do it. They've started to move their manufacturing facilities to places like Vietnam, which are a little bit more um, available right now. Well, here's the problem. When China has ramped up so much production capability to meet these needs and they start getting pulled out, even if it's just a little bit to start, I mean, honestly, the, uh, the, the, the avalanche has already started. Maybe it's too late for the pebbles to vote. Um, they're going to be faced with a big problem of having uh, factories that are absolutely not being used to capacity. And an unused capacity in a factory is lost money. And we've heard from economic indicators that even if you believe the numbers that are coming out, things don't look so great. If you understand that maybe those numbers have been massaged a little bit, things look downright not rosy at all. So what is China going to have to do? Well, you're going to have to do what you said. They're going to have to create their own homegrown industries to ramp up production of those um, materials, of those devices, and sell them internally to utilize all of that production. But also, like you said, to avoid the fact that they're being basically blacklisted from the world market for all of these specialized machines that requ are required to make all of this uh, semiconductor technology. Now, take that with the stories that you've heard this year, where we're starting to see other manufacturing facilities being built here in the U.S., now, you might be a little bit pessimistic and say, oh, well, the only reason that they're doing that is because the government is funding them through the CHIPS Act and they're basically getting paid to build stuff here. Well, why would the government want to do that? Well, you could probably say that they're wanting to protect their supply chain. But I think ultimately the thing is that the government also realizes that if the way things are going, it's not going to be very cost efficient to be able to manufacture stuff in China if they can't get a hold of the parts to do it. So they're trying to foster that um, industry back here at home in the U.S., so I think what's going to happen is, is that as the as the rock starts sliding down the mountain for China, they're going to be faced with the question of, do I start ramping things up and really try to develop these industries? Okay, no big deal, you say. Well, if they're building it internally, they don't need to buy it from us anymore. So that could create these ripple effects throughout the entire global economy as ostensibly, depending on who you believe, the first or second largest economy in the world. Now, suddenly, 
doesn't need anybody else anymore. So what's going to happen? And that's where the big shoulder shrugging moment comes because we've heard so many times from so many companies about how important it is to be in China. I mean, look at the rules that China has put in place for so many years that require you to you know, work with a subsidiary in China and they must own at least 51% of the company. And all of the things that people have bent over backwards to do in order to open themselves up to that market. And now that market may not exist anymore. Like I can just imagine the CEOs of the companies that we talk about here on the rundown on a regular basis, literally gnashing their teeth on a daily basis hoping against hope that all of the moves that they're making to offset the challenges that they've seen in China aren't going to eventually lock those doors, even for five years, would be enough to cause massive destruction in the tech space. Like what's going to happen if suddenly we have to have this major round of acquisitions around companies to keep them afloat? And, you know, it, that what is our government going to do? Because we've already seen how hesitant they are to rubber stamp acquisitions anymore. I like I literally could spend an entire you know doctoral dissertation talking about this, and I'm not even an economist, but that's the the, the game that we're playing here. This isn't playing checkers with your eight year old. This is playing chess with countries as your moving pieces. And I think it's important to point out too that some of this investment that's happening that we've been reporting on, for example, the massive fab in. Um, here in Ohio, or the fabs from, uh, you know, that Intel's building, the fab that Micron is building in New York, uh, the investments that are happening in Texas and Nevada and Arizona and so on uh, to build out microprocessor production, as well as uh, Germany and Italy, um, these uh, are not going to come online right away. And um, also, I think it's important to point out, too, that just being able to manufacture semiconductors here in the U.S. doesn't mean that you can manufacture chips. You also have to do things like cutting and processing and packaging, um, and I mean like physical packaging of these chips. And a lot of that stuff is still happening in China for now. A lot of that has to also be ramped up. And finally, I think it's important to point out that it's not just chips. A lot of uh, manufacturing of important components happens in China. And so you can assemble iPhones in Vietnam, but where do the screws come from? The only factories that can make precision micro screws are in China. The only factories that can make precision micro lots of things are there. And I think that we might see a bit of a trade war started here over some of the advanced things that China is contributing to the global economy, even if the manufacturing ends up in Vietnam or India or Mexico or somewhere else. So I think overall we might, um, well, it's, it's very worrying. It's a very worrying situation. Um, and, it, and it comes back to us here in enterprise tech because all of this affects us. We've talked uh, just today about advanced RISC-V cores and processors and you know, manufacturing, and, and all of that stuff relies on global uh, supply chains that will be disrupted by COVID and by the uh, restrictions on trade with China. Yes, and it's, it's a bigger story. And like you said, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, and we're definitely gonna be covering a lot of this in the coming year. Uh, on the rundown, because, you know, that's what we do every week is we, we come up with fun stories. Speaking of weeks, um, we do have some information about some stuff going on in the week ahead, uh, although the weeks ahead for us are going to be in 2023 because uh, we're, we're just about here and done. I will say that I'm very excited to kick off our 2023 Tech Field Day event schedule with uh, another edition of Networking Field Day. Uh, happening January 18th through the 20th in Silicon Valley. If you want to check out the companies that are going to be taking part in that, of course, you can head over to techfieldday.com. And Stephen, you're coming in right behind me with another great event as well. 
Yep, we've got Cloud Field Day, January 25th, so uh, look that one up as well. And uh, finally, uh, if you've enjoyed the rundown here in 2023, I recommend tuning in next week on Wednesday for a very special episode. Uh, We're going to run down the year's top stories uh, right here on the rundown. Yeah, we've got a lot of news that we definitely want to make sure that we uh, kind of recap. And maybe some of those stories back in January that we didn't think were so important at the time actually did become important by the end of the year. So make sure you tune in for that. It'll be our final episode of the rundown for the year uh, because Stephen and I are both going to take uh, a week or so off and and not worry about the news for once. But uh, you can better believe that even after that episode, we'll be back in 2023 with more great episodes for you. So make sure you follow us. We're at Gestalt IT. Uh, just uh, look for the hashtag rundown. You can subscribe to us in your favorite podcast application of choice or follow our YouTube channel. All of those links will be in the, uh, the show notes themselves. Uh, but thank you very much for tuning in. We look forward to uh, recapping everything with you next week. But until then, take care, have a great week and happy holidays, folks.